Everyone else seemed to agree. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem, downtown, the world agrees. What you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer. Where you are, they collect the garbage. People obviously pay their life insurance. The children are happy. Say, you're not. And you go back home. What is unspoken is a terrible thing. What is unspoken is a terrible thing. What is unspoken is a terrible thing. rolling mm-hmm. we want to th- good good so uh yeah three two one action uh thank you everybody for watching for listening whatever platform you're on uh, i've been excited for uh, today's interview because i have been following this lady for over three decades she's been a major influence to me as as, as a musician a drummer especially because i'm drummer and um so i have with me somebody i'm, I'm real just so happy about this grammy award-winning drummer producer and educator her latest release with a band called social science is called waiting game and i love this i love this this is graminated up oh, graminated hey that's a new word i just came up with like a new thing it is like uh, it. <laughs> nominated for a grammy this year in the 63rd annual Grammy Awards for best Intr- instrumental, uh, forget the category, jazz album, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a body work that's beautiful, just more than just music. There's a statement here. So without further ado, uh, I want to welcome Terry Lynn Carrington. Thank you very much, Terry Lynn, for taking this time. How are you doing? I'm good. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's it's fantastic. You know, I've had the uh, the good fortune to see you not many times, but three times with three different groups. The first one was here with uh, a Turning Stone Casino near Syracuse with David Sanborn. I had a great seat, too, man, because I could look right up by your high hat. I could watch your hands and I love being I purposely picked that seat. Which which band was that? Like how long ago? That was back in the eighties. That's probably late nineties. Don Elias was with you that night. I'm pretty sure. Well, he was always there. So. Oh, okay. All right. I've only really um, done two bands with David. So one was in the eighties with Hiram Bullock and Ricky Peterson and Steve oh, Logan. Man. Wow. Uh, yeah, and the other was with um, Christian McBride on bass and Gil Goldstein. Oh like man, on, oh Gil and Christian are just amazing. Yeah, you know, and I, I had seen David another time at the Turning Stone, and it was um, is it Gene Lake mm-hmm. and Bobby Thomas Jr. Mm. I just talked to him not so long ago. Oh, he, he's such a sweetheart. We're yes. uh, uh, this this interview is about you, and it's going to say he and I are getting ready to work on a possible duel. Like, because uh, I'm more into rehabilitation these days, the past couple of decades of uh, working with people with Parkinson's and movement disorders and Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. Uh, but healing and music plays such a uh, a great role in helping people to heal and actually move better. So it's really cool. So we've been talking about 
what can we do you know so but what a sweet guy i just love him mm-hmm. um so let's um let's move forward i i wanted to oh no i know what i want to say the second time i saw you is the regatta bar with mike stern probably bob francisini and i don't know who was on base chris mendoki possibly i'm not sure uh, uh maybe um uh lincoln gons maybe lincoln yeah it might have been maybe regatta bar in cambridge and then uh, the last time is it's a while back though that was herbie hancock Symphony Hall, Michael Brecker, Roy Hargrove, Scott Cowley. You, what a, what a band. Yeah, I was thinking about that band this morning because there are some recordings of it and um, I just wish I could nudge Herbie to go through them and listen to them and maybe you know, put it in other directions and music album out. That would be great, man. I mean, I, okay, I'm going to admit it. I have a bootleg I recorded that night. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not the quality you'd want to release anywhere. Um, yeah, I used to do that, but yeah. so for for myself. But uh, yeah, no, that's why I heard it. Actually, somebody sent me a bootleg. <laughs> no kidding, really. That's, yeah, that's man, exactly and I, that was it. one of records maybe last tours. Yeah, sadly, it was. yeah. It was. But man, he played his butt off too. So, um, what you know? Let's go into this. Um, I want to go right to this question um we're gonna i want to focus on you obviously and waiting game um future projects activism if you want i'm i'm cool whatever you want to talk with because you're doing so much for the world um but while we're on this topic of talking about some of the musicians you've worked with like what was it like working with herbie and wayne shorter and I mean, you know, Sam Borner, Clark Terry, Stan Getz, uh, Eldro, Dizzy. I mean, there's a lot of them. That's just a little list. That's the short mm-hmm. list. But, um, like, how did it come about where you started working with Herbie? I was working with Wayne Shorter first. And okay. I started playing with Wayne when I was 21. I auditioned for his gig with uh, 14 drummers. Wow. And so it was a pretty big deal for me to get that. Um, I've only oh, auditioned sure. like four times in my life. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, two of them I got and two of them I didn't. But uh, so after playing with Wayne for a little bit, sometimes Herbie, you know, either came to a gig or we did special things together. So one, I think the first time I played with Herbie, we were opening um, Wayne's sister-in-law's club in L.A., uh, Samba Isodace mm-hmm. and um, yeah I remember one night Nathan East played bass and another night maybe Tony Jumas played bass but anyway we played two nights and that was the first time I played with Herbie and then the, I think the second time was like an all-star uh, performance for the St. Lucia Jazz Festival mm-hmm. and uh, that was Stanley Clark um, and myself and Herbie and Wayne. And then from that point uh, at that show, Herbie asked me to tour with his This Is The Drum project. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, were I, you like, were you pinching yourself ever, ever like, holy crap? I'm oh, yeah. Working with Herbie or I'm working with Wayne because that had to be just really cool. Sure. I mean, I was definitely pinching myself and <laughs> 
just wanting to, you know, play as good as I could and feeling like uh, they really gave me a shot, both of them, um, feeling like they saw potential in me and, and helped to develop it. And I think that's uh, the key thing here with those relationships. Uh, I'm a much better musician after playing with them. And um, we have to do more of that, you know, work with people whose potential we see and help to develop it because that's the only way that this music really continues. Yeah, you know, I wrote down a note here because I might not have thought or remembered to ask this or say this, but, you know, um, I was talking with uh, Tom Breckline, this is years ago, just saw him play and he was talking about how like Chick Corea it's like working with an institution. And then, of course, uh, well, we have a couple mutual friends. Uh, Jimmy Haslip has been a good friend for many years and produced a couple of CDs that I did. Mm -hmm. um, but Jimmy was telling me how, you know, he, he had had the chance to work with uh, Herbie on occasion here and there. I'm not sure where exactly, but he says the guy's a freaking institution, you know, and, and, I, th I thought about that. And then you look at some of the, the, the great artists before them, like Herbie with um, Miles, that that's like an instant. It's like these people crank out and, and they help to, like you say, develop and teach. It's like they're in and, and turn out these players who they came in really good. They're sounding great. And then they just get, they evolve and evolve more over time. And, I mean, look at you. I mean, this is fantastic. I love, I love what you're doing. So it seems like, so, you know, it makes sense what you say about um, Herbie Wayne. Totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, they were believers of gender justice before it was a term, you know, um, yeah. in hiring me and, and uh, being mentors and understanding that it's an apprentice art form. Um, and Wayne especially has always been very supportive of uh, women players. He's always hired uh, quite a few in his bands, you know, bands I've been in, but other bands, you know, before and after. And, and sure. Herbie has too, but uh, Wayne used to say that uh, he hired uh, women and young people because if you're uh, reading or a science fiction book or watching a science fiction movie, it's women and young people that are the leaders and up front, you know, yeah, bringing us that. to victory. <laughs> it seems like um, in many ways, you know, Wayne, Herbie, Miles, you, there's foresight. They have foresight in, in many ways, uh, but also they just recognize humans as humans, right? I mean, you're a human, right? Well, yeah, humanity is, is what they talk about often. It's mm -hmm. art connecting to other humans and art having a, and, and striving for a deeper understanding of humanity. Um, I think that's what we're trying to do. Um, with that said, I do feel that there are um, different pluses, you know, that, that different people bring, whether it's cultural differences or gender differences or, or whatever, you know, we all have, you know, these things in our background that help inform our artistry. So I think uh, we don't want to look at humanity as everybody is the same, but in some sense, everybody 
is uh, equal, or at least we want to, to have a, a society that believes in equity and, and justice for, for all people. So I think we can do sure. that uh, in, in music maybe easier than it's done in society. You know, we, we can be a, a beacon for that, you know, a guiding light. Yeah. I think that's a really good point too. Yet at the same time, you have the individuality, right? Mm -hmm. You have the, the signature of yourself as a musician, a composer. Um, and that's- Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like you, that Herbie and Wayne say, they're not playing music, they're playing life. And, um, you know, oh, wow. I always strive to, to, to do that, to understand that. I remember one night playing with Herbie and I felt like I had an outer body experience. And when we came off, he said, now you're doing it. You know, he, he felt whatever I felt. And uh, oh. he said, now I was playing life and not music. Um, I only had that experience that one time. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, they, they also practice Buddhism. So their Buddhist practice informs uh, some of their thinking, a lot of their thinking as well. But I do, I do feel we have to celebrate our differences and our diversity, uh, yeah. you know, and also, you know, look at equity and equality too. Absolutely. Wow, that's really, that's a heavy statement too, but it totally makes sense. You're playing life. Yeah. Uh, Wayne music. says, uh, I'm not what I do. I do what I am. And I keep trying I'll go to go back. I'm going to write this down later. <laughs> <laughs> As I've taken a few years, seven years off from playing. And uh, when I come back, it's going to be a whole different thing. And it won't be for money because that was my job. And then it became a job. And for me, it was just, you know, I never really know what I, what I wanted to do. But I feel like I can make a statement. And what you just said, I'm going to go back and think like that. Because I think that's really important and powerful. And it makes this, uh, I was talking with, uh, actually, you probably know Steve Hunt, mm -hmm. who's at Berkeley. Um, I, don't, I don't really like know him, know him, but I, I know who he is. We had just talked about how, um, well, it's easy to play a lot of notes, but the intention behind the notes, that can really change how the note comes out. The intention, what is the intention? Is it just to be a note or is it, part of a spirit is a part of a something deeper and yeah. that's very powerful yes absolutely i think that's what makes you know everybody sound different and some people i think are more connected to their their person their life and and their sound on their instrument so i always look at it as um, that's your primary connection you know, you, you and, and your instrument and how do you become one with that? And then the next connection would be with the people that you play with and how do you sound like one, you know, many in body, one in spirit. And then your connection with the audience, you know, how do you uh, connect to them? I mean, it's a shared humanity that yeah. we're uh, addressing. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree, you know, with Steve, intention and sound because um, some people are able to connect, you know, in a way that makes you care, you know, a way that makes you feel uh, mm -hmm. what they're doing. And other people, you know, may play perfect, but it just, it sort of sounds 
that way and you don't really have a human connection necessarily yeah exactly and i've been guilty of that for probably more of my drumming career than not because it took so long for me to get my act somewhat together you know but uh, of course i could go down self-deprecation boulevard right now but i'll stay yeah. off, i'll stay <laughs> off that road <laughs> yeah let's not do that <laughs> no, no, it's been a, but it's been a really good learning experience to take some time off, talk with people, learn, examine, listen. And then, you know, it's like, you know, I think I'm starting to get my act together a little bit as far as, you know, who am I? What can I do? What will I do? What will I say? Um, mm -hmm. So trying to figure out what direction to go here. I think I want to move forward a little bit uh, before we talk about maybe some stuff in the early years. Tell us about waiting game, the concept the like where did this come from because what i what i get from waiting game is uh and it's on vinyl too and you know what i gotta get a turntable but i i bought it on Bandcamp. but bottom line is waiting game is a really deep statement and certainly worthy of best jazz instrumental grammy award and it's got it has to win i mean how could you get any more just incredible than that. But where did this come from? What's what's the history of Waiting Game and social science, actually, the band? Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you for your kind words and support um, and putting a good juju out there. Um, the, the band started uh, just from conversations that I was having on the road with Matthew Stevens and Aaron Parks. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were playing in different configurations um, so we weren't, the three of us weren't together, but I really ended up gravitating to those two musicians. And then one gig we did do together in China. So the three of us were hanging out and, you know, that's when I thought we should really uh, do something. We should, you know, put something together. Let's do a project. And uh, I got started getting together with Aaron first and um, a few of his pieces came from that. And then uh, Matthew and I collaborated as well on, on at least one song. And then we all just had some things we were working on individually. And I kind of helped bring it all together, you know, to make it sound like one project. Um, the first song I think was Bells. Uh, Aaron wrote the music and I wrote the lyric. And then we have a lot of guest artists, spoken word artists, and rappers on the record as well. Um, and then Waiting yeah. Game was the second song. Uh, and a former student of mine, a Spanish student, Tony Bakur, he um, played the piece for me in a lesson. And I just knew, I don't know, it was just one of those things. I was like, I want to write a lyric to this. And um, I don't know, it felt, felt very poignant to the times. Um, and then we added Morgan Guerin. Um, he was the next person that came. He plays bass and saxophone, and he's also a drummer. And oh, then cool. after that, uh, Debo Ray, vocalist. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. She, she's amazing. She sings. I love her. In, yeah, 30 I, languages I or something crazy. I really love her. I mean, she's just incredible. Yeah, she's really a strong vocalist. Uh, and then Casa Overall uh, rounded it out with um, being a DJ and rapper and you know, adding those kinds of effects and um, you know, that to the band. 
Um, so Bells has, um, that's Malcolm Jamal Warren, mm -hmm. right? He's on that? Yes, yes. He's a, yeah, he's amazing. Um, I, I, I've known him for, for a while. He's a good friend. Uh, I wrote the, uh, like I wrote the lyric and then I wrote a poem. Um, really, it was inspired by uh, Philando Castile, uh, who was somebody that was shot uh, by the police in his car while his girlfriend and child were in the back seat. And just watching that video just kind of haunted me. So he was the uh, inspiration for the song, but there were so many uh, you know, people that you know, the story is not just about him, unfortunately. Um, and so I had written poetry, a uh, spoken word piece for it, but then um, I sent the song to Malcolm and, and had him do it because uh, that's really what he does. And um, he was the first, I think, spoken word artist. And then we added um, Rhapsody. She yeah, spoken Rhapsody. Word. Yeah. I, and I love it. Michelle and Degocello and, and Casa, of course, and Radar Ellis. Other guests were um, Nicholas Payton, Esperanza Spalding, yeah. Eric Hodge. Another one, I, I just, she's just so incredible. Yeah, never seen so her live or anything but you know i love she's been on a lot of things and she's done some really cool stuff yeah go see her when you get a chance she's a really amazing um artist you know she's somebody uh for me that i don't think there's that many people that play an instrument as well as she does and sings as well as she does and composes as well mm -hmm. as she does and writes poetry as well as she does um so she's so, kind of a one of a kind. People like you and her are, I refer to you as the real deal. Because <laughs> well, it's this I, complete, I, complete package that has evolved and keeps evolving in all of those areas you mentioned and other areas as well. And I, it, it just seems like, I bet she's cool to talk with too. Oh man, yeah. She's one I mean, of those people can, that I, yeah. I get on the phone with and can't get off because we keep talking and there's always something more to say, you know. It, it seems like people who, I don't know how to say this, I never have actually probably said these words. So the the thought that I have in my mind, though, is like, uh, well, actually, I just lost the thought. It, it'll come back. It's COVID brain. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, they, they come back with the thoughts. It'll come back. Um, so, so I think I just, I just wanted to go back on the band oh, because what, yeah, what yeah. happened was the things that we were talking about were things involving, um, you know, our country and issues that we were concerned about. And yeah. uh, a lot of that, you know, stemmed around the injustices around race. And of course, gender too, but, um, you know, the indigenous uh, people, and their struggle, um, uh, gay rights, um, what are the uh, 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 prison, mass incarceration, uh, oh, prison yeah. reform or abolition. Um, I feel like I'm missing a subject, but you know, we just kind of went down the gamut with different uh, issues that we wanted to speak about. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really sad what's happened in so many areas and this came out before George Floyd but you have George Floyd and so many other incidents that are examples of well really bad stuff and um yeah. it's funny because a lot I of mean, people oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was no, just gonna go say ahead. a lot of people say that you know they say 
you know, they keep remarking on how the album is uh, almost predicted the times and, you know, they, it, it, it's reflective of things that happened after it came out. But, you know, the sad truth is that, you know, those things are, of course, were always happening. Oh, you this know, has been going problems. on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So I was talking with, um, and, and I don't mean to bring up other people uh, okay. to highlight them or anything, but Dennis Chambers, we were talking recently and we were just talking about discrimination. You know, has he ever felt discriminate, discriminated against because of his race? Absolutely. And it's gone back since he was a little kid. So, I mean, it's really sad that that actually ever occurred and still occurs. And I could go down a, another road of politics. I'll stay away. But I mean, you know, if you want to go there, I'd be happy to. But because I'm sure we're on the same page. But, you know, when I look at that and I think of uh, the suppression of so many uh, yet, well, I, I think that uh, in, in some ways that some of the music that I hear, I hear pain in the music, and it might be because of various uh, unfairnesses, right? Whether it's gender or orientation or race or whatever. And, and, and it's actually some of the most beautiful music. It's just too bad that pain had to be a part of it but then again i guess it's part of our journey of growth and educating and sharing and creating awareness well pain is part of the human experience i mean suffering is is there for everybody i mean some people more than others um but you know for buddhism teaches us the four sufferings of life uh birth aging decline and death um and you can't escape suffering so it's almost like um the idea is to also experience and uh, celebrate the joys and sure. uh, suffer what there is to suffer, enjoy what there is to enjoy and remain faithful. Um, and I feel like uh, music, um, uh, black music, especially is rooted in the blues. Uh, you're going to hear that story, you know, the, the story of the blues, which um, is, is, you know, kind of drenched with suffering, but there's also humor and there's also, uh, you know, joy attached to it and um, education, you know, that you can learn things. It's, it's a, a pretty amazing form when you look at it, you know, that in all American music seems like it's come in some way from this form, you know, yeah. the blues, you know, from slavery music of, uh, you know, field haulers and, uh, 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 work songs so I, see I have COVID brain too yeah <laughs> no, no work songs. That, that, that makes sense it's an evolution in and of itself it seems um so let, let's go back for just a minute um the early years you uh you started young playing music uh, was was were the drums your first instrument I also saw a picture of you and maybe your father, I think, on mm-hmm. saxophone. Mm-hmm. Both of you? Yeah, that's yeah. cool. No, that was the first instrument, alto, which oh, uh, I was cool. five, so it looked more like a baritone. <laughs> um, it's a great then, photo. Well, wow. Thank it. you. Then I lost my uh, first set of teeth and switched to the drums uh, when I was around seven. Okay. And then look back. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, who... Who did you look up to as 
who were your heroes as drummers? Everybody. Like, that, a, like if you go time. back and if you were to do like a chronological, like who was the boom, the number one? Oh, this is my hero. Well, it, it shifted. It changed because I was so young yeah. and my taste was developing and what I needed to learn was developing. So I went through stages, you know, could be six months or a year or uh, whatever amount of time of just really checking out different people. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Art Blakey being an early person, you know, and, oh, yeah. uh, because my father started me uh, with learning shuffles. So mm-hmm. Art Blakey was a natural person to gravitate to. But I mean, I listened to a lot of organ uh, records, Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, oh, people like yeah. that. So you had drummers that didn't have big names, but were influential in some ways, you know, like um, yeah. Joe Dukes and uh, Ron Jefferson, people like that, you know, Les McCann albums. And um, then of course, at the same time, I was listening to albums that had Billy Joe Jones on it, Jimmy Cobb, mm-hmm. of course, um, and then drummer led albums, you know, Max Roach, yeah. uh, Roy Haynes, Elvin Man. Jones, you know, Tony Williams, so all of these people, I would go through sort of, you know, stages of listening heavily to them. Uh, by the time I was 18, 17, actually, um, I really identified with the style that Jack DeJanet, uh plays, like how he uh, plays. And um, yeah, I met him and he became a big, huge influence and mentor for me yeah. and uh, kind of a surrogate family. That's so cool. I love Jack, man. I've seen him on many occasions and, um, you know, I've been listening. I guess I might have discovered him around when I was 14, which would be 1975. And uh, I think it was, there were two volumes of this, like Stanley Turrentine, Freddie Hubbard at Keystone Corner or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Jack was on it because I, I was in a Freddie. That's what it was. I was like, oh, there's this guy, Jack. And that was it. Yeah, yeah you know? he'll, he'll do that to you. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm I'm curious now as a, a a drummer myself, what what kind of things did you learn from Jack? How how does he wow. think? What's what's his? Does he have a process? I mean, I don't mean a process like mechanical. I just mean, you know, well, tell me. I mean, I didn't take like lessons from him. I just mostly hung out and learned as much as I could sure. off the bandstand, you know, away from the drum kit. So I think when I started hanging out with him, my perspective on, on music was more shallow. So I think one of the first things he said is, you know, we need to open you up. You know, he started playing me other, other sounds that I hadn't really, you know, didn't really care about at the time, but because it was him saying, you know, let's check out the Yellow Jackets. Uh, I think it was their first album, so I had never heard of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let's check out um, Burning Spear. You know, we went to a, a reggae concert, you know, reggae festival. Um, wow. He took me to, uh, first time I ever went to a string quartet, Keith Jarrett uh, played a concert with string quartet. Uh, took me to see Sweet Honey and the Rock, first time I ever went to a vocal acapella um, oh, wow. concert. Uh, and we went to see Kenny Burrell play solo guitar. You know, these wow, were just things cool. that I, I wasn't doing. <laughs> that's um, really cool, though. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and think- also just, uh, you know, philosophy. I remember uh, he and his wife, Lydia, turning me on to um, uh, Joseph Campbell, who became okay. somebody that I really, you know, enjoyed reading. Uh, it was the power of myth and uh, the famous, now famous Bill Moyers interviews yeah. with um, Joseph Campbell. That's so cool. You know, some of the best lessons I've ever had were conversations with non-drummers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a saxophone player who I've probably learned more from him. Uh, you probably don't know uh, David Castiglione, but I never learned more from any other musician than him. And it was never drums. He's not a drummer. Mm. But, you know, he talked a lot about intention. You know, what do you What's your intention? Why? I'll never forget playing a, a duo with him, the tenor sax and me, just jamming at his house. He's like, you know, you got a lot of shit happening. You're just saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a conversation over several little cups of espresso for a couple hours, and we went back. He says, okay, you just said something. But it took me like a half an hour to say anything that took one minute. And then I was back to the other stuff. But that was a really powerful lesson. Yeah. Conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to explain those types of things. Uh, I have to talk to my students about that, too. You know, like what's behind what they're playing. You know, like you can all play, you know, a piece of music or read something. But you know, I don't feel it. Like, what am I supposed to feel? How do you convey that? Right. Right. But, You're teaching at, at Berkeley, right? Yes. Um, you've, been, you've been there for a while. 15 years. And, um, you know, the first seven years, I was doing mostly drum lessons and uh, ensembles and some drum labs. And mm-hmm. then three years after that, I was teaching in Daniela Perez's uh, Global Jazz Institute. And then, uh, yeah, in the last few years, uh, I I think I got the number of years wrong, actually. I think I did more like 10 years of lessons. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the last few years, I've been uh, working with an institute I created at the college, the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, and that guy, Perez, man. Yeah, he's amazing. He's like, like a brother. Position. Yeah. Yeah, that is so cool. Um, yeah, and we, we talked off camera. I just have to say this uh, waiting game is really powerful. Um, and I wrote I, I wrote a note down here and I love how it ends, the last song, the last note. And and who's playing who's playing saxophone on that? Uh, Morgan Guerin. Okay. Yeah. He's well, a, I like that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and he was doing a lot of that like harmonic, harmonic stuff. And maybe I'm not sure. I'm not a saxophone player. I tried. It just didn't work out. Uh, false fingerings and things. But almost like tritones in a way or something. Love. Yeah, he's doing a lot in there. <laughs> it's, it's a real, uh, to me, a very climatic, powerful ending. And I feel like w- w- when I listened to it the first time, I said, that was a complete musical statement, meaning the whole the whole suite of the four uh, dreams and desperate, desperate measures, part one through four, plus the whole album. But Thank wow, you. yeah, 
And Esperanza. I'm happy to hear you uh, listen to the whole thing because I think we're in this culture of people, you know, listen more sporadically, you know, the things. And it was intended to be like that, more of a top to bottom uh, type of listening it, experience. You know what? I had actually wondered about that. I thought about writing that question down, then forgot to write it down because it seems like this this began the very first note to the very last as a dialogue that was meant to be listened to in a certain order. I mean, I I appreciate that a lot. That's how I try to listen to music. Not all, you know, a lot of things are put out and that's not the intention behind the order of what's happening. Mm-hmm. But this makes total sense. Oh, thanks. I'm glad to hear that you you got that. <laughs> And yeah, actually, the, the fourth, the fourth, the four pieces that you're talking about, which is album two, because it's a double album, yeah, uh, that was one piece, and we just separated into four pieces to ID them in case you know maybe if a radio station wanted to play them. But that was an improvisation of 43 yeah. minutes or so from the beginning to the end, one time. I, yeah, I was I was um, reading that I think maybe on your website that that, that was an improv. What a totally, totally hip improv. Um, Pardon me for a second. The post-COVID stuff is still happening, but, uh, you know, I listened to some really good music during that. Um, So, okay. We talked about this. Let's talk about uh, just a couple. There's three things I wanted to hit on here. And if there's anything else that you want to talk about, it's totally cool. I mean, I have hours available. Uh, <laughs> not that I want to keep you yeah. <laughs> any longer than you have, but I appreciate any time that you have. So um, highlights of your musical career. Are there any things, are there anything moments that just jump out to you that are like, this was like one of the best experiences of my life. I want to talk about future projects, plans, and any words of wisdom for people. Um, when I see people, I mean, society in general, but also maybe artists who are out there up and coming, um, they're trying to learn how to, they want to evolve. So those are some areas I'd love to just, uh, hear your words about, um, highlights. Let's talk about highlights. There's been a lot of highlights. Um, if I were to think back, um, chronologically, uh, Clark Terry um, hiring me at 10 years old to be a guest uh, in Wichita, Kansas. It's the first time I ever traveled, you know, to play drums. Oh, wow. And uh, mm-hmm. so oh, my wow, parents cool. and I, yeah, flew to Kansas. And, um, you know, first time I ever got paid, you know, to play. <laughs> so and cool. I, I met so many people. Uh, one was Buddy Rich that day. Oh. And, uh, he became, you know, a good friend, and he got me my uh, endorsements uh, that later that year. Oh, uh, wow, man, that's so cool! There's yeah. a great, I'm interrupting. I'm sorry. There's a great photo of you with him. Uh, I love that photo. Oh yeah, yeah. Beautiful. He introduced me on this to tell the truth show. I think that's that photo is from the studio. Really? Oh wow! <laughs> and uh, he used to let me sit in with his big band when he came through Boston. Um, and so, yeah, I got a uh, Zildjian endorsement then and Slingerland drums. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a highlight. And then uh, that following year, um, I sat in with Oscar Peterson and uh, 
there was a show with Ella Fitzgerald, Oscar Peterson, and Count Basie that uh, we went to, my parents and I, and uh, I sat next to Ella Fitzgerald and I used to visit in her dressing room with her when she uh, came through town. Oh, so she man. took me, and she took me to meet Oscar Peterson and she said, you know, this little girl plays drums, you know, you gotta know her. She played with Clark Terry last night. And he said, what? I gotta hear this. So then he wow. asked me to sit in and the president and his wife of uh, Berkeley College of Music was there and they offered me a scholarship. So that was a major moment because um, I got a scholarship, full scholarship to school. Beautiful. Um, and getting the Wayne Shorter gig was pretty major uh, as well, of course, uh, at 21. Uh, yeah. And traveling also around that same time with David Sanborn, uh, different people, Stan Getz, James Moody, you know, all of those experiences really, you know, I think helped develop me to be um, uh, versatile. You know, I played in these different situations. Some was like funk, some was, you know, straight ahead. And, you know, some was in between more like fusion. Um, and then I moved to LA and I got the Arsenio Hall show. And that was a big, a big yeah. uh, moment. Yeah, I remember you on that. I actually remember also when it might have been your last night there and Arsenio had you as a guest or close to your last because mm -hmm. you were going off on your own. And it was like, I mean, I'll be sorry not to see her on the show because I watch the show all the time, partly because of you, but she's going to do stuff. This is great, <laughs> you know, so that's cool. Wow. Yeah, that yeah. had to be really cool. No, it was, except I did think I was coming back. Uh, and they had led me to believe that I could take a little time off. It was just a couple of weeks to tour and support my record. But then when I did, they really asked, you know, me not to go at the last minute and said they really need somebody that made the, you know, chose the show as the priority. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like they didn't say that in the beginning. So they kind of put me in a, between a rock and a hard place. I and I had to, you know, make a decision. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the experience, and um, you know, I think the universe always unfolds as it should. Yeah. So I follow, uh, you know, the stars, so to say. Sure. And um, then I, I also did the Sinbad show uh, ten years later, which was Vibe TV hosted oh, by yeah. Sinbad, and um, a Quincy Jones production. So that was also yes. very cool with Greg Fillinghames. He was the. You know, I was just talking with my wife the other day. Like, whatever happened to Sinbad? Is he, what's he doing? Anybody know? Well, I could look it up. Kept, but yeah, I, he kept working, of course. I mean, he would come. I live in Boston, and he plays Boston at least once a year. Yeah. So um, he's, you know, keeps doing his stand-up. He's out and, there. I like yeah, that guy. Acting. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. No, he's, he's uh, you know, he's one of the good ones. Like, one of the really amazing uh, comedic improvisers and I yeah think, i really know, really like Simbad. yeah great you know improvisers you know i think relate to each other in some way you know what i mean oh. um, so i think jazz musicians and, and comedy you know have a lot in common mm -hmm. um you know like like you can see these parallels with a uh, richard Pryor and miles davis you know <laughs> that's true um, yeah that's true yeah but uh, as far as other highlights, you know, uh, playing with Herbie was a huge highlight. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, coming back to Boston uh, and, you know, finally kind of working on my own music and um, 
dedicating myself, you know, to that, it, no matter if a label said uh, I could have a record deal or not, because I, I went for quite a while without one. And then one day I just, you know, put some frequent flyer miles together and uh, asked some favors and, you know, even with Herbie, and he came and played on a few songs and I played for a week for free, you know, with him, you know, did some mm -hmm. bartering and um, made this album with my own funds called Jazz is a Spirit. Yeah, and, I have, um, I've got that on CD, yes. Mm -hmm. Thanks, and that I think for me was a turning point because it, it made me understand uh, that you have to believe in yourself, sometimes invest in yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you can't, your value is not going to be determined by other people. You know, you have to kind of be the uh, controller as best you can of your own destiny. And um, yeah. so for me, that was a big lesson. And since then, you know, I've uh, had some huge moments in these last few years. Uh, I became a Doris Duke artist or fellow. Yes, um, congratulations, by the way. I meant to put that in the intro. Oh, Fantastic. that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also the uh, NEA Jazz Masters Award uh, 2021. Beautiful. Um, and then, uh, of course, I've you know, won three Grammys so far in a nomination. Now, I also won an Edison Award. Uh, the band really won that for social science for um, Waiting Game. Uh, and I had uh, this, you know, been a landmark year because Downbeat uh, awarded us Album of the Year, Group of the Year, and um, Artist of the Year. I saw um, that. It's just so, I mean, first of all, that's all incredible, but also it's all extremely, in my opinion, it's extremely well deserved. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of depth to you. There's a lot of depth to the people you hang with. And it, it shows. It shows on what you do, what you put out. And I'm glad that Downby recognized that and the Grammys recognize, you know, and nominate because it's heavy and it's really great. Oh, thanks so much. Appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I just, I have to go off track for a minute here. So my first, my first big influence was Buddy Rich. And I kind of, you know, listened to him for a little while. My, my dad came home, I think I was five or six with Big Swing Face album. And then the other one with the West Side Story. I think they were mm -hmm. recorded the same night. And then when I was nine, I saw Buddy. And that was it. You know, I it sealed the deal. Got to be a drummer. But then I got into uh, um, leading up to something here. Oh, here it is. Okay. So sorry. Okay. COVID brain is bad, man. Don't get COVID because you have a COVID brain. Uh, my English teacher in seventh grade, so I was 12, turned me on to Billy Cobb, Chikoria, Mahavishnu, Herbie Hancock, Headhunters. Changed my mm. life. And uh, this trajectory has been so cool. One of the things I love, um, I, so my best friend lives in, uh, I'm sorry, Nash, um, Manchester, New Hampshire. So for you know, two, three times a year, I go out there and hang out and visit. Um, we used to go to like the lily pad in Cambridge once in a while and see like Bob Gulati. I think mm. he, he passed away, I heard. He did, yeah. So what a nice guy, man. What a great mm. teacher. Uh, and George Garzon and um, whoever was there. But or we go to Regatta Bar, we saw you. Well, anytime I, when I saw you out there, I was with my friend Tom. But we, we would do this thing. He would do this thing. This is, he has this enormous CD collection. 
and I'm finally getting to my point here, but what it is is he'd do a blindfold test on me. Say, okay, I'm going to put this on. Tell me the drummer or tell me, you know, the guitar player or whoever. But drummers, I recognize drummers because I listen so much to so many. And what I love as I finally get to my point is about you, you know, Elvin, Tony, Roy, you know, Erskine, uh, Buddy. I mean, but you have a signature. And I, I love that. I, I love it that, uh, and it seems like maybe it's getting more difficult. I'm not sure. And you're at Berkeley, so you would probably know this. But as an educator and as somebody out there deep in it with all these great players, but it seems like it's getting more difficult possibly to establish your signature because there's so many people. Well, I was a copycat. I guess we all probably had to copy. We were influenced, right? But eventually we try to get it together and come out with our own Mm -hmm. somewhat of a statement, which is one of the things I love about you as a composer, as a, as a drummer. Uh, So first of all, bravo on that. Thank you. I mean, I I, I sometimes don't know if I do have it, you know, but if I do, it's got to be more like my simple sound or simple touch or kind of. It's a snare drum single single thing that I pick up. Yeah. (laughs) There's also this elasticity you have in certain situations where, in fact, I'll never, I'll never forget it. It was the second song of the first time I saw you. You were with Sam Bourne. I think they probably opened the Chicago song. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know the next the next song after, but it was the one that starts off you. Oh, okay, you know, I knew I saw Bobby with that band. Yeah, that was a different I forgot about that tour. But that I couldn't remember on... if it was with you or not or Gene Lake. But I saw it with Don, I saw it with Bobby Dean. two years in a row. Yeah, Dean, um, Dean, Brown. Dean, I think, yeah, I was playing guitar. Yeah, Dean. Patterson was on bass, maybe. Yep, Richard, exactly. That's good. I knew from the songs you started singing. I was like, oh, okay, that wasn't the early band. <laughs> and it wasn't the, the, the later. Okay, I forgot about that little uh, stint I did back then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, though, you, at some point during the evening, well, a few points, but especially there was there's one point where you did a solo and I don't know what song it was on, but I'm like, I can't, I won't say the F word. I'm my own thing here, but <laughs> what the F is she doing? And this is so freaking hip because, but there's this elasticity that occurred that I've heard you do before on recordings and this and that and stuff. But to watch you do it though is really cool because the flow, the flow, it's like, I wish I had some kind of a time, uh, exposure of your arms and hands that night i hope that doesn't sound weird but that would that would actually bring out a a a really cool looking picture um because of the flow but the elasticity yet you know the pocket and all this stuff and this is like the quintessential terry lynn i love it yeah yeah. so cool yeah i mean that's you know just the elasticity is you know, for me, I, I get that from Jack. Jack. Oh, yeah. In fact, he just called me while we've been talking. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Well, well, say hello. <laughs> that is so cool. I love that guy. 
I hope he's doing well. I haven't heard much about him recently, but uh, you know, if he's out there, well, nobody's traveling or anything, but yeah, I love him. He's, he's just the best man. Yeah. I, I was, I went through a Jack phase and I still am actually in, in a different way, but you know, that whole openness, it was kind of like Elvin and Jack were my heroes at the same time. Mm-hmm. Heavy duty. Yeah. I think, you know, Jack's sites his two favorite drummers were Elvin Jones and Roy Haynes. And I feel like you can hear that in his playing, you know, both of them as being major influences. Oh, um, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Roy's like 90 now or something, isn't he? It's crazy. I, 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 I can't keep up. <laughs> can't keep up with him or his age. He's just amazing. Yeah. He's one of my heroes. I love it. The flat, the flat ride too, right? Yeah, classic flat ride sound. Now he sings, now he sobs. That's oh. the first time I heard that. <laughs> yeah, I had probably I wore that vinyl out. In fact, the other day I was doing what I often do at night before bed is it's kind of like getting ready for bed. I'm going through YouTube. This thing comes up with Christian McBride, Chick, and Roy, and it was The Matrix. Mm-hmm. I think it was the matrix. Yeah, that's a not matrix. Um, that's uh, what's the name of that one? That's the minor blues. Uh, uh, I can't remember the name. It's on the same album. Um, yeah, same album though. Yeah, but it matrix was, is a. Yes, that's matrix. But yeah, they're both killing. They're both amazing. Roy's like you know. 82 in that one or something it says and he's just crushing it you know yeah we all aspire to keep going like him man yeah so let's um i don't want to keep you too long um but no i will if you let me but i I don't want to keep you too long future plans what are you what what are you working on now what's what can we expect in the future from you um Well, um, social science is uh, hopefully we're starting really soon, like within the next month or so uh, to write and um, work on some new music for a second album. Uh, And I'm doing some cool uh, multidisciplinary projects, um, multimedia projects. Uh, I'm the artistic director for the Car Center in Detroit. And so we're doing some programming online right now for this year's uh, season is duos and duets um, wow. so we've done a few of those but next season um, we'll be back as we all hope to yeah. live performances and um, I have something called Jazz Without Patriarchy Project that uh, we'll be doing which is a multidisciplinary a bunch of collaborations so nice. um, that's a you know big thing that I have to start preparing for um, also doing um something along those lines uh, with Sean Jones and Braxton Cook for MIT. Um, and oh. they're doing like a collaboration with the three of us called It Must Be Now. Um, so those are two things on top of my brain. Um, I've been doing some consulting. Uh, one is with the uh, Errol Garner uh, project. Oh. Yeah, cool. Yeah, trying to figure out some cool ways to uh, you know, bring his legacy to 2021. It's his hundredth anniversary. So no kidding, really. Wow. Yeah. I heard a lot of Errol 
Errol growing up because my mom and dad were big fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's still amazing. I was listening to a live concert of his last night. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, well, that sounds really cool. And, you know, there's a question on here. I, um, well, it's not on here because I didn't write it down. But has how, how has this whole situation been for you this past year, the pandemic and all that? Did you have tours scheduled that you had to, and gigs you had to cancel or anything like that? Cause, yeah, a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, we transitioned, you know, everybody had to transition to an online uh, model, you know, an online way of um, being creative and, and reaching people and, and having yeah. community um, and serving community. So, you know, we have to teach online and, um, uh, you know, yeah, one interesting thing is it creates opportunity too, because you you're able to, you know, fellowship or just have guests uh, with people that you would not have been able to if, if you were in person. So um, I'm trying to look at the positive sides as well, and I think things will will come back, but I don't think it will go back to exactly the way it was because these new online models I think are going to uh, remain some of them. I think you're right about that. I think that we've, I've discovered in my business with, you know, I was traveling globally for years teaching this uh, Parkinson's um, education program that I put together. Basically, it's just how to uh, manage disease symptoms, reduce cognitive decline, you know, improve cognition, whatever. Travel, teach. And I mean, I would go to these countries, I would go to these cities, and um, now I teach online. I don't, I don't even I like airplanes but only for like 20 minutes you know and I want to get off but I'm like the last trip I did about a year ago to Singapore it practically killed me and literally I wound up in the hospital there I've never been in a hospital in my life as a patient and uh I'm okay but I can teach in Singapore now I just have to adjust to the time difference I can teach in any anywhere now and it's it has changed I was also working at the university here at Syracuse uh, and some rehab stuff and teaching and you can do it online so I really glad this not glad about a pandemic but I love how you're looking at the positive out of it too because if we don't choose to find the positive then that would suck because there are always positives from a negative to find and we have to remain creative. I think that that's like the challenge and that's, yeah. um, you know, the challenge is the very, um, you know, the very foundation of who you are. Like, are you a creative, creative person? If you are, you'll be creative wherever you are and however you need to be because that's part of who you are. Exactly, yeah. Well, I just saw the other day, uh, Chick Corea, he's been doing a lot online. It's really cool. And he and Gary Husband did this thing that came out really cool. And that's, you know, you see all these other, these videos coming out too of bands who, um, well, you're seeing them in squares on the screen and they've recorded their parts and put it all together and there it is. And it's kind of mm-hmm. cool, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's it, better it's, than it's, not being able to, sometimes I like I get to see players, combinations of people now that I would never see live. Right. Because I can't yeah. go to those places. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, the problem is with that, it's not in real time responding to each other. And it's exactly. an overdub situation. So in general, one person is responding to what they're hearing. Yeah. Uh, opposed to people responding in real time to each other. But 
uh, it's a different way of doing it, but I think it, as um, Herbie used to always say, it beats a blank. <laughs> 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 so. He's, it sounds like that guy is full of a lot of cool little statements. Uh, there's one thing I'll mention in a second, but yes, there's nothing like the live experience where, you know, you're on this, you're with the, the, the band, you're interacting off of each other. It's nothing like that real time mm -hmm. yeah is it, did herbie ever uh, before we get to the last thing of any words of wisdom you want to share with people before we sign off i was watching a herbie interview uh, about something and i'm not sure i have the story right but he was talking about how miles changed the way he played and particularly there was one evening where miles like leaned over because Herbie was struggling or having a rough night or something he's like don't play the butter notes. Now, I don't know if Herbie said, don't play the butter notes, but I think that's what he thought Miles said, and maybe Miles said something different, and it changed how he voiced his chords. It changed his way of playing. You ever heard I think that's what, yeah, that's what, I think that's what Miles said. Don't was play it? the butter notes, yeah. So those Which would is, be what, the easy notes, right? The, the, the sweet yeah. notes, the, the ones that, the, you know, more conventional, just, you know, he was, I think, giving him permission to be as adventurous as he could and as curious as he could. And um, that's really cool. Yeah, I think that's what we all need, really. You know, somebody did you ever um, us. did you ever meet Miles? Mm -hmm. I never played with him, but um, I met him several times because uh, we opened for him. When I was playing with Wayne, so we toured oh. together in Japan for over a week. You know, twice, mm -hmm. two different years. That's so, really cool. Um, I remember him wishing me a happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I saw him twice, once in Chicago, because I lived in Evanston for a couple of years in Northwestern. And uh, you know, Mike Stern, Marcus Miller. That's the only time I've ever seen Marcus. Have you worked with Marcus? Sure. You um, know Marcus, yeah. You've mm -hmm. seen yeah. Yeah, worked with him with Herbie mostly. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a band. She uh, it was like uh <laughs> It, there's some on you should check it out online um there's a concert from japan from uh tokyo jazz festival and uh it's headhunters band so it's marcus and myself and roy hargrove oh, and man. um leonella wake wawa watson uh Manyango jackson uh, and then we did another headhunters tour with both Roy Hargrove and Kenny Garrett, uh, which oh, was, was two horns, which is great. But this particular Japanese uh, video that's online is one horn. I'll check Roy that Hargrove. out. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody who's watching, listening, go check that out. That's an all-star lineup. Kenny Garrett, man. Holy, holy guacamole. That guy. <laughs> I love that guy. So yes. let's let's talk about a couple things here um wh where is of course these days everything is different in how people listen to music and buy music i prefer to buy things because i want to do something to help support artists uh people stream things and whatever <laughs> now, i think it's really important I, I will go down a road right now because the people who listen to me know how i feel but if there's anybody new listening you know things have changed in the music industry over the years a lot and especially when it comes to 
the uh, how how people choose to listen. And it's not that they're wrong to spend ten bucks a month on whatever platform and listen to anything and everything. But I think you know the artist gets maybe one penny if they're lucky, and probably not even that. And it's it's very sad because this this is if you take uh, some of the releases coming out. And, you know, we'll use a waiting game, for an example. I mean, this is heavy stuff. This is years and years and years of uh, decades of experience as a drummer, as a composer, as an artist, and uh, who, who also is in touch with society and things that are happening and, and, and activism and things. And this is really deep. So at least go spend the 10 bucks on Bandcamp, <laughs> buy the damn thing, because it, in, in my opinion, it's the right thing to do. Um, so that's my one statement for my audience. And <laughs> I know they agree with me, but you know, I, my dad had an old turntable. I gotta ask my mom about the turntable. He had a nice one because <laughs> she's not going to use it. I want to get a turntable and start buying some vinyl. I have a couple thousand, you know, in the basement of vinyl and it's like vinyl is pretty cool. Yeah. It's coming back. So there's no sound like the rich full sound of vinyl. Yeah. Analog sound has its own personality. It does. Mm -hmm. It does. Well, Terry Lynn, thank you so much. Um, the last question here. Do you have any advice? Where's the wisdom for people up and coming artists, whether they're up and coming or not? Just anything that you'd like to say? Wow, that's a big question. Uh, people ask that There's so many different things, you know, it depends on what, what day it is, I guess. But if I were to look at just the students that um, that I see all the time, um, one thing I would say is there's there's no shortcuts. Um, you have a responsibility to really learn the history. Um, if, if you're trying to be a jazz musician, uh, mm -hmm. learn the history of the music. And, um, you know, it's almost like a big jazz tree. And you have to look mm -hmm. at the roots of it um, yeah. and, and look at all the branches and understand the uh, evolution of it. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of time. So that's when... One thing I would really encourage everybody to do if they're serious and especially hang out for a while with bebop because it was so important uh, to the evolution of the music that often I can, I feel that I can really hear the holes in a player that has not spent time with bebop, doesn't understand the phrasing or the language. Uh, so I think that's super important. Um, and then, you know, kind of what we were already saying earlier to, um, you know, be connected with something. How do you make the listener care? Like there's so much music out there, so many musicians, and it's such a competitive uh, arena. Yeah. You're comp in competition with everybody else out there, the people that have been out there for 40 years or, or five years, you know? <laughs> so yeah. how do you get people to care about what you're doing? And I think it's a deep search, you know, to, to, to finding your authentic voice and, and finding um, and honing in on what you have to say. We have to really, you know, have uh, an idea of how we communicate um, our shared humanity yeah. with, with oh, others. Yeah. And that, that feels like the message and, and the mission mm -hmm. that we have to do as creative artists. You know, if you're just trying to, you know, be a popular music artists, that's fine too. And that tends to be often more about entertainment and not that there's not messages, there is, but with instrumental music, it's, it's more difficult, you know, to uh, to get your messages across without words. 
and so much of jazz is instrumental. So um, you have to really dig deep and, um, you know, takes as much time and research uh, as writers of books and films and, and poetry yeah. and visual artists. And so do all that work and, and dig deep and realize what your mission is. I love that. That's, uh, those are really good words of wisdom. Really good. So folks, go buy Waiting Game. Um, you can, where are the best places to buy it, Terry Lynn? Um, well, wherever you, you know, buy your music, Bandcamp or iTunes or um, Amazon or, okay. you know, everybody have, has different favorite places. There's so many now. I, you know, I'm this CD I put out last year. It's the only one I ever did under my own name, and I didn't even know Jimmy Haslip hooked me up with this. So I'm not a drummer anymore, really. I mean, that's not my profession. I'm a recording contract. This is crazy. But anyways, <laughs> um, you know, I don't have to do any more CDs and whatever. But I mean, I learned through this that everything has changed more than I realized it changed. So. Uh, I'm glad you said that because I wasn't even thinking. COVID brain. Wherever you buy your stuff, go buy this. <laughs> okay. There I'm you sorry. go. <laughs> well, it has been a real pleasure. Um, I've admired great. you for a very long time. It's really good to meet you face to face. It's great to talk with you and learn from you. And I, I'll be watching you for uh, all time to come that I'm on this earth. So uh, I'm... Mm -hmm. We love what you do. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks for being with And yeah, hang with me for just a minute after we're, we're done. But thank you very much, Terry Lynn. Thanks for Appreciate having it. me. Really nice to speak with you. You too. Thanks a lot. Thank you, everybody who is watching and listening. And um, hope you have a fantastic day.